Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's the Wonky Show. We're talking skills, orca, TEF, PQA, and more. It's all coming up. You know, unless you basically say, right, we're going to take all selective universities out of the equation. And bearing in mind, you probably also want selective universities to be offering some of this flexible provision as well. We're not talking about apprenticeships. We're not talking about college provision. We're not, to, you know, there's, there's, we're not talking about anyone over the age of 21. You know, you're talking vast swathes of, the, of, you know, the majority of, of provision potentially isn't, isn't featured in the admission system. So let me get this right, Debbie. You're saying that there are some people in government working on one area of policy and then... <laughs> They didn't talk to... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and it's a special episode this week as we've had an avalanche of policy from the governor in Westminster. So joining me to bash our way through the policy snow is Wonky's top editorial team. In Watford, we have Jim Dickinson, Associate Editor. Jim, you're hired for the week, please. Uh, I think for me it was... Actually, not related to the policy tsunami. It was Wednesday morning, I was lying in bed, and I, and I opened up the Times and saw that OFS's chair, Michael Barber, was to give a speech where he would say... I am told that the vast majority of controversial speaking engagements go ahead on UK campuses. I'm willing to believe it, but I'd love to see the data. Because I was sat in bed, lying in bed, sorry, thinking, your regulator collects the data, Michael. And and of course, then I leapt out of bed like in a Kellogg's cornflakes advert and uh, and proved it. Too much much fanfare on a site. I think it was one of the most read things all week actually um and um in the southwest uh i can never remember exactly where but it's uh david kernan dk <laughs> walkie's other associate so dk you're I feel especially week, valued this week i have to say um well um i suppose building on from jim's story uh we then went to the event and we challenged michael barber to uh see if that uh, data could possibly release and he wouldn't actually firmly commit to it but he did say that uh wonky is strong on the detail but needs to think more about the wider strategic picture which is really interesting uh feedback from the outgoing chair of the office for students and something that we'll all uh reflect on in future Yes, we're, we're taking that under advisement. Thanks, uh, thanks, Michael. Um, and um, in London, it's Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, you're hired for the week. Oh, it's a non-Michael Barber-related highlight. Uh, I think the, no, the not no. The highlight of my week... Uh, I, w- I received a lovely email at the beginning of this week, and I know, we're, and the fact that uh, from from a senior colleague at at, at, a, at a university, a subscribing university, saying how much she enjoyed. Uh, last week's Monkey Show um, and how useful she found it. So uh, that was really lovely, given how busy uh, everyone is that she took the time to do that. And I only hope that this week's episode will be equally useful. Yes, I seem to, I seem to remember it was, it was her light relief, which was uh, saying, uh, I think, a co- commentary of the times we live in. <laughs> um, right, everyone, let's, uh, let's dive straight into it. Um, and the big ticket item was, of course, the Jobs for Skills white paper, long-awaited Further Education Skills white paper, um, and, and along with it, the interim conclusion as uh, a civil service formulation for you to the, uh, to the, to the Augur review. Um, Debbie, what do we need to know? 
uh, well, but the first thing we've identified is, I think, the uh, problem at the heart of the naming of the paper, which is is that it's skills for jobs, not jobs for skills. But those things feel quite quite uh, uh, interchangeable, don't they? Um, so we're all going to have to kind of keep our keep keep in, in, in the same way as we don't get our lifelong skills entitlement and our lifelong. Uh, I, I, I see. I see. I got the name of the white paper uh, wrong there, and I would say I would re-record that, but of course, Jim will edit the incorrect one in because it's I think, much more funny. So I think that that is an example of a wider strategic focus rather than attention to detail. It's <laughs> the sort of thing that, yeah, that we're, uh, Michael Barber will be happy to see. Um, yes, so but I think one, with the, one, one, of the, one of the things we, we've, we've said is that really is, today is FE's day to shine, really. And, um, you know, the, 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 the FE sector has been waiting, waiting so long for this, for this white paper. Um, and it's, it's come and it's, uh, and it's really kind of setting out, I think, quite a clear agenda for, for what needs to happen in further education. Um, and that's really important. But there will be, there will be ramifications for higher education as well. Um, so the accompanying uh, interim conclusions to the post-18 review of uh, uh, education and funding, uh, the OGA review to you and me, um, has very little in there that isn't actually covered in the skills white paper, but the kind of key nuggets coming out of that were a uh, realignment of the teaching grants. So there will be a consultation on this towards uh, areas deemed to be more highly strategically important. So we're looking at STEM provision, healthcare, um, areas of uh, you know additional need in the labour market, um, and th- and that sort of thing potentially, which will, which will not be welcomed, I imagine, by by those in the humanities and social sciences areas. Um, and the other thing that we we knew was coming, but the well, was confirmed, was that there will be nothing on fees or student finance or any major changes to the funding regime um, until the comprehensive spending review, which is penciled in for later this year. But we, you know, we've been here before on the timing of the comprehensive spending review, so we, you know, we know we know what that means. But all the swords are left dangling, aren't they? The, the swords are left dangling. It's, 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 it feels often with these these kind of conversation about Olga, it's kind of what's not in it um, <laughs> is almost more important than what what actually is. I mean, so the big sword, as you say, Jim, is 7.5k fees, which is but also still minimum entry, minimum entry requirements. I mean, I remember there was like a month, wasn't there, where ever, where that was like a thing, and then Chris Skidmore ruled it out, but it's back in. It's well, back is, in I mean, pending there another is, consultation. Yeah. Well, yeah. there is, and there is there is that promise of of more consultation in the spring, which of course, in parliamentary terms, could mean anything up to the summer recess. So, what you could imagine is a plan of action in which there is a largish consultation. Um, in spring or summer, looking at you know the auger in all its glory and all these different uh, different proposals, including things like minimum entry um, and things like foundation years, all these like little bits and pieces that auger looked at and, and and caused controversy and then disappeared, uh, followed by some sort of final conclusions at, at the CSR. But it's hard, you know, they would require the government to have quite a lot of bandwidth to to deliver on all of that. And of course, there's also this HE strategy paper that we know is floating around in DFE that talks about things like freedom of speech and grade inflation and perhaps some more about quality. So there is a kind of basket of, of emergent policy there. It's just not, we, we, it's just we can't necessarily be confident that it's actually going to happen. Mm. I mean, the, the, what the, the, the justification given for not giving a, a full conclusion to the auger response to auger in in the, in the response today was that the government focus is is on the pandemic. Um, I mean, I think the government focus should and still will be on the pandemic in six months, or you, you kind of you kind of hope it will be. Um, what you know, what's going to change to get us to a point where the government set, suddenly says, "Hold on a second, I know what we need to to push up the agenda is cut, cutting tuition fees." I think I've just about lost count of the number of major uh, fiscal events that the response to August was supposed to come alongside, and then then either the fiscal event itself was cancelled or 
the response to Olga was pushed back. I would not be putting money on that not happening again in the summer, to be frank. Well, I think what's what's interesting though as well is is that the um some of the meaning making that might come along with reducing the home undergraduate fee level, which is of course what we're talking about here. No one's talking about touching postgraduate or international or any of the rest of it in England. Actually it does rather depend on the emergence of this higher technical agenda coming out of the FE and skills white paper. So um you know the intention is 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 that the government will amp up the rollout of higher technical degrees, that these will be provided at level four and five. They'll be provided in colleges, through institutes of technology, possibly in universities as well. Um, there'll be And there'll be a whole kind of infrastructure around them to help, you know, to, first of all, to make sure that they're of a high quality, that they're aligned to the labour market. But second of all, to make sure that young people particularly are, when they're looking at their options, uh, feel able to choose HDCs as a, HDQs as, as an option rather than the kind of, I guess, default to a degree, which the government's sort of trying to trying to undermine. And, and there's you- the local angle here as well, which fascinates me. I kind of feel like we're building a theme that the government is kind of coming a purchaser of in the public interest in the education market uh, post-18. So we've got the uh, uh, local skills. Uh, I mean, obviously, this is a a lot like the local enterprise partnerships or the mayoral uh, combined authority uh, remits, but supposedly the idea of em- employer leadership of local skills agenda is going to get written into law. And I think we're seeing something similar happening with higher education in the government is starting to take an active interest in thinking, okay, which skills do we need? Which skills do we need to make sure happen? And he's actually starting to pay for them. I think it's an interesting uh, development, and it's particularly interesting that it seems to be happening across the piece. And I mean, the further education and skills sector has been waiting for this this paper for for a long time. And and I mean, we complain about policy making in, in higher education. We do, uh, but um, it's nothing. It's nothing that uh, FE in particular has to suffer through um, with the chopping and changing. Has any have either of you seen or any of you seen the how it's gone down so far? And that sector uh there's been kind of um, a cautious welcome as far as i could see but they're still asking for more detail and particularly uh details of the funding i mean it's all very well to talk about the entitlement to four years at approximately undergraduate fee level but if you don't know what those fees are going to turn out to be and you don't know what mechanism or metric is going to exist and that's also the point that a lot of colleges now are really up against it in financial terms uh, um during the uh, pandemic so there's a lot i mean if you listen to the uh, debate in the House, which as always was another triumph for Gavin Williamson, wasn't it? Um, the lot of the questions that came from MPs were effectively, okay, I support the principle of this, but this particular local college in my constituency is struggling financially and can you help it please? So I think a lot of these aspirations are welcomed, but there's a, it's starting to hit the reality of where colleges currently are. Debbie, tell us about these lifelong learning loans we've been hearing so much about this. Well, morning. this, this, I think this is the, really the central plank and this is where it get, I think it gets really interesting because, um, it's all very well to say there are these higher technical qualifications and you can and they're of a similar quality and 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 to academic pathways and and you know you can absolutely you know and here is some you know improved careers advice to to sort of steer you towards them um but the fact that from the intention is from 2025 that it'll be possible to access loans 
to to do them to do any to do any to do qualifications in either further higher education um with similar a similar access to to loan finance is is the potential game changer here and where i think it gets even more interesting is is that the government has explicitly said it wants to see modularization um and across 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 higher education provision and you know both in both in colleges and universities so there will be funding to incentivize the development of modular provision the idea is you get stackable credentials uh, so you could do and with this lifelong learning loan entitlement will then enable you to you know dip dip in to get a level four qualification maybe top it up later in life with level five to level six at, at different points um, and in theory transfer the credit that you've earned before uh, into different institutions and into different subject areas and all the rest of it um, as we know from many, you know, much like PQA, many, many years of working on credit transfer, this is a really, really big ask. It's something that's been tried, you know, it's a, it's a thing that's been tried to be cracked many times and it's not something that a, a solution has been found to, but it really is the holy grail. If, if, if this attempt at solving the problem of credit transfer can be solved, the government will have done something really quite spectacular in terms of delivering a meaningful lifelong learning offer. Um, for for post compulsory education, it's great news for the data wonks in that there's a lot of work that needs to be done on equivalents, on uh, descriptors, on kind of different lengths and levels of qualification, and how they can or could fit together to make a particular award. Um, it's a great time to be somebody like Andy Ewell, really, uh, because there'll be a lot of questions asked about this and how all this stuff fits together. I think it's also worth mentioning with the modularization that. For the first time, we've seen uh, the government saying that they don't want to incentivize the production of thousands of low-quality modules that don't lead anything in particular. I kind of read that as um, a little knock at uh, the university sector. Maybe I'm just expecting that these days. Maybe that wasn't there, but that seemed to be the inference. So it, it would be quite easy to pull together a number of standalone modules that would be attractive to people that were reskilling and to tap off little bits of the loan entitlement to pay for them. It's also worth noting that there's been no word here on maintenance loans. These would be the fee loans only. So it's not like you're going to get supported to actually study something uh, uh, full-time unless it happens to be through the degree system as far as we know currently. I think I think also there's probably one more thing to say in this whole agenda. I mean, and obviously there's loads on the site, so go, you know, go, go and have a look and, and more will come in in the coming weeks. But if you take a step back and look at the big picture, you know, as we've been advised <laughs> to, beyond you know beyond 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 all these all these all these details there's something here about you know empowering colleges i think um and some of this uh, speaks to the you know the local the local skills improvement plans that dk mentioned um some of it's about the kind of presumed delivery uh, space for for higher technical, which you know, which which will be, I think, quite quite college focused, although HE is not excluded, um, and and the kind of sense that higher education becomes one of a constellation of options rather than the you know the go to the default the presumed uh, you know be better path, um, and I think this you know this 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 doesn't change um you know the quality of, of of what higher education providers are doing or or the kind of breadth of what they can do it's not it's not really changing anything at all but it does it does shift their shift their position and that could be feel really quite uncomfortable for universities particularly if they're working with local partners right let's see who's been blogging for us this week 
My name is Tom Lowe from the University of Winchester, where I'm the head of student engagement and employability. It was a pleasure to write a piece for Wonky this week on a, a perspective that I've picked up during particularly the global pandemic of lots of online teaching where we are beginning to see students rather than turning up live to their online sessions actually choosing to watch them in their own time and when as most of these are now recorded in more of a box set approach i make the point in my paper that the google generation generation z the current students we have in higher education are not only the generation that want to get answers to everything quickly um, through googling but also the generation of netflix the generation that are able to consume large amounts of tv series documentaries and movies in a short amount of time make an argument in our paper that perhaps now as more content is being delivered online and recorded and that most attendance requirements are being lifted around the HE sector that students are now starting to not turn up to live sessions but instead turn and watch whole units of study that would previously have been consumed over eight weeks in a matter of days for their assessments. Now I think this is really important because in some box sets we watch um, that are like series like Game of Thrones we watch them from the start to an end because if we watch random episodes they don't make sense but I ask the question can we say the same for our units and modules of study in higher education are they told like a story or do our students actually think okay I've got eight classes for this unit of study and I think I only need to watch two of them to to pass the grade uh, through the assessment that's put in front of me so um, I hope um, Listeners and readers of Wonky liked the paper that I put together, and I think it's one to reflect for those of you who've got data in front of you, those of you who are engaging with students on a daily basis. Are your students learning in a slow, paced method that perhaps we would like and traditional higher education would expect, or are they box setting their degrees? Now, another major flank of the government's policy at our lunch was big action on the teaching excellence framework. That's the TEF. DK, walk us through it, please. Fantastic. The uh, peer review of TEF was announced in, I believe it was 2017. We've been waiting pretty much ever since for this. It was um, a statutory requirement in the Higher Education and Research Bill. Um, I personally have felt every single day of this long wait and I'm delighted to see that it's finally here. The peer review itself is excellent but unfortunately what we really need to focus on is the government response to it which is a document spanning just three substantive pages that was clearly knocked together in an afternoon. Uh, the upshot of all of this is subject TEF is no more. They said clearly we do not want the the OFS to proceed with any form of subject level assessment as part of TEF this time. There's going to be a revised and invigorated. I would have gone for maybe revised and reinvigorated, but that's just me. Uh, a provider level TEF, which will run every four to five years. So quite close to the quinquennial approach of the REF with the first group of assessments completed and published um, as early as September 2022. Uh, we finally also wave goodbye to bronze, silver and uh, gold. Uh, it's not ye- yet decided what the next levels will be, but there will be four of them. Um, the, the move to, to four or five years really jumped out at me because, I mean, one of the major justifications for the TEF was that um, applicants would find it you know, useful to... Uh, to make judgments about potential courses and and the underpinning work 
that went into the independent review showed that applicants aren't using it, don't know about it, right? And oh yeah, there's some marvelous stuff on that. Yeah, really, um, it's, it's it's hardly hardly features as a factor at all in decision making. So they actually in one of the surveys they did, or they they talked about, uh, they offered uh, uh, students a list of fifteen uh, uh, possible things that they could look at in order to choose a course and a um, and a provider. TEF came in at number 15. The possible subject TEF came in at number 14. Above that, we have stuff like incentives on offer, work experience Magic as part Apple, of the course, TikTok. the range of modules. <laughs> yeah, we're at that level. So it's pretty clear students don't care about this stuff. There's some quite disturbing, there's, there's some quite disturbing evidence that also career advisors aren't really that fussed about that stuff. It kind of makes me think of the, uh, Daniel Kahneman book, Thinking Fast and Slow, the idea of making decisions that's kind of route A thinking, the head thinking, there's route B thinking, the stomach thinking, and that we make decisions using route B and then we justify them with route A. I think I've got that the right way around, I'm not sure. And it's a lot of the responses where if you ask students, if you say, would you like to have detailed information about the uh quality of courses, they say, yes, of course we would, because what sane, rational thinking person would not want more evidence to make a decision on. But in practice, they're actually using it in decisions. There's very, very little evidence that really anybody is doing that. So a big chunk of the Pierce review is looking at the idea of what actually is TEF for. And they come down pretty strongly. It's for enhancement. It's for it's for raising the esteem of teaching and making teaching better. Um, but the government kind of says, okay, yeah, we ex- um, accept that. And that's the primary purpose of the, the, the enhancement of quality. Um, of course, to then say we're going to um, link it to the regulatory framework because that's the best possible way to do enhancement, isn't it? But they also chuck in as a secondary purpose that a TEF is to inform student <laughs> choice, despite overwhelming evidence that it does no I, such I, I, thing. I, 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 I mean, I st- look, I said on Twitter, I, I still don't understand when it comes to institution-level TEF, when every other kind of consumer or service provision or life choice that people make is about data personalization, where, you know, you can pick from 300 different data points and kind of mix and match them to your life. Mm. Who Who are these students that want... You know, a, a, a bunch of metrics that are donkey's years old, that are buried in the me- the averages of you know twenty or thirty thousand students, uh, uh, and benchmarked. Who are the students who, whether in principle or in practice, would go? This is what this is helpful. Like, who are these? But, but, but Jim, isn't isn't this isn't this the same argument that says, well, league tables are useful because they inform student choice and they help people make decisions, when actually what they're for is is you know prestige and you know selling advertising and and all the rest. You know, it's it's not it's not saying it's about student choice allows you well, to do lots of other things well, with it I, that I, are I think useful. That's right, but the thing I'd say about most of the league tables is what well, I think is interesting about them is, of course, you know, universities love to say on the banners when you arrive on campus, we're eleventh in you know the region or we're we're second in the country for whatever. Most of the league tables, to be fair to them, allow you to play with some data personalization tools. They allow you to either change the weightings or to only look at student satisfaction or to only look at salary. You know, you can play with all of them. One of the things I find amazing about the TEFIs, if you're a student, 
all you can see is the medal. And if you're really brave, you can pick apart some spreadsheets. But I mean, you know, most people are not David Kernaghan. I've worked that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, but this is but yeah. this is this is where these these four categories uh, come into play because it, it, when they had gold, gold and silver and bronze, the idea was that bronze was basically meets meets the very high you know world leading quality threshold. Now they're saying we're going to have four levels, of which the top three are essentially, you know, yeah, well, well, you know, well, well above average. Everyone's world beating. But then there is this, you know, fourth level, which, which will be, you know, this enormous yeah. stick. I think to say, oh, steer clear. And I think but and with I think, a longer and with a longer exercise, though, that's that's a that's a really big stick. Yeah, yeah. But a, I mean, that would be yeah, that would yeah. be a kind of kiss of death, wouldn't it? Yeah, and, it would absolutely. Yeah. And it will be. And I think what you know. Because because a lot of the there will still be I think a qualitative submission, but because a lot of the exercise will be data based on data, it will be perfect. It, it, I think the intention is for OFS rather than um, actively telling institutions you have to stop offering this course because it's not it's not hitting our thresholds to be able to say yeah, but you know is it gonna is it gonna cause you a bit of a problem? Essentially, you're, you're going to see a raft of courses disappear because they're dragging the averages yeah. down yeah, yeah. because of the fear that they'll get be slapped with this yeah, and, you know requires improvement. And, 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 and I think or, you know, I mean, looking at social media, obviously the headline was "Subject Hef's Dead," and obviously you know people are popping their kind of virtual champagne corks on on Twitter and so on. But of course. Yeah. What is still there is the iron fist that emerged inside the velvet glove halfway through this process, which is, you know, subject mm-hmm. level benchmarking on those, sorry, subject level baselines on those two, you know, no, not benchmarking, not subject benchmarking. level baselines on those yeah, two really important metrics. <laughs> and, you know, that there should be. Mm. Lots and lots and lots of people working in lots of universities, Worried. actually, right now, that if they knew how close their subject was to some of the sorts of baselines that OFS is talking about, should be, you know, nervous, worried, partly because, you know, it's always been the case that when you apply, you know, barbarism, <laughs> barbarology, whatever it is, <laughs> probably barbarism, actually, <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever it is. Deliverology. Deliverology. The question has always been, if if you're close to the edge on your metrics, do you ditch the provision or improve the provision? And when you've got six schools in an Mm. area, then that's one thing. But if you're the only place in the whole region that does anthropology, that's something else. And, you know, this thing about people dropping provision, moving away from provision because it doesn't hit the outcomes, is, is, is still the big contemporary, you know, interesting... Uh, I don't know whether I'd use the word threat, but it's certainly an, an implication of what happens next when OFS carries on with that quality and standards consultation. It certainly is. And this ties in nicely with one of the recommendations of the Pierce Review, because it's, as you say, Jim, the big headline was uh, subject F has gone. And I suspect both actual and real champagne uh, corks were put at that exercise, uh, thinking of the kind of people in small providers who actually would have ha- had to put together... F- 57 or whatever there actually is separate subject submissions they're going to be pretty pleased but although um ps is fairly clear that the subject uh subject tef as a thing should not happen for some incredibly sound statistical reason and the government backs that up on the burden reason uh ps suggests 
that subject level metrics presented as a test metrics are actually incredibly useful to providers. And she likes the idea of having subject as another split within the tests. So in the same way, you can look at full or part-time students. You can look at students from different ethnicities or different uh, backgrounds. You can also look at all the students that are studying, say, um, nursing or social work or anything else. And you can look at any particular interest with them. So she suggests that that could feed the main panel decision, which actually this time around is partially based on metrics and partially based on a much stronger institutional submission. So I guess the question um, then is, so would that, if, you know, would uh, OFS in that, you know, that sort of hat it wears sometimes where it's saying we want to empower students to make choices in the market, blah, blah, blah. W- would at some point OFS, regardless of what DFE has said today, say, all right, we'll make those splits, that kind of stuff that Dame Shirley Pierce has recommended available to applicants? That would be tasty, wouldn't it? I think they would. I think it would be very tasty. And it is um, a clear uh, response to the uh, Pierce review, which remember the government has, in its own word, accepted the majority of recommendations. And that actually is a recommendation, although the, they do say clearly that they don't want a subject element in the assessment. This perhaps isn't the assessment, it is certainly arguable. Um, if Richard Putnock is listening, I think you should go for it. It'd be fantastic, and I look forward to plotting it. <laughs> but it, it's a quite a tight timescale here. So they're going to to design a new exercise and actually do the assessments and launch the results for September 2022. It is a bit of a downgrade, isn't it? It is, it is essentially just a paper exercise at this point. Um, it feels like... I've got my personal prediction is it's it'll be the last ever TEF because if five years time for five years from September 22 we're going to have a whole new government we'll be yeah well be on the other side of another general election you know probably eight or nine each year and that is interesting because the way in which it might incentivize um, all sorts of headache inducing terrifying behavior in the run-up to it you know because it you know mm. it will be the the one won't mm. it it will be the one that lasts for a, for, for a bunch of years and you know yeah. That's right. Poss- <laughs> forever. Possibly forever. Possibly forever. And and if you're stuck with that, you know, stuck yeah. with a bad result there, that's gonna that's gonna stay with you. But I mean, I I, I yeah. Well, well, we'll have to see what happens. But I mean, I, the, the the sector has always been quite good at, at kind of killing ideas with kindness. It's it's done quite a um, masterful job on uh, on the subject review. I I wonder if a, a meanable minister, you know, after the next six have have lost their jobs. And the future government, maybe not even a conservative government, who knows? Now, come um, on. <laughs> you know, a quiet word could be had. You know, we don't need to bother <laughs> with all this. We don't need to bother with all this TEF stuff, do we? This year, well, I mean, it does. It does rather depend on, on, on how the on how the over, on how the overall quality regime it shapes It really up. does, yeah. And really and particularly, does. I think what the kind of UK wide impact turns out to be, because if one of the things that kind of inadvertently happens is that um, the breakup of the UK is precipitated by the English quality regime. <laughs> I mean, it, w- it won't just be caused by that, but you know, yeah. but if, if that if that's sort of part of the picture, I think it's a major that, factor. Yeah, that, that you know that, that that could be a thing to roll back on. But the other thing that um, the other thing that jumped out at me, and, and the reason why DK might actually struggle to plot this iteration of the TEF uh, is is the provision about doing something about educational gain, which we know is learning ah, gain. Yes. Um, mm. And this, this this whole other metric that has now sort of re, re-entered the, the policy space. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, I mean, we had Camille Candico um, on our Skills to Thrive event a few weeks ago, and she was very involved with the the hefty learning game projects and she sort of said she thought it, she thought it might see a comeback. So she obviously knew something that, <laughs> that we didn't at the time. But... Um, 
but to the best of my knowledge, you know, that 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 series of projects did not come up with a kind of foolproof uh, way of doing it, and particularly anything that you could do consistently, you know, across institutions yeah. to create comparisons uh, was was essentially not robust, and and then the alternative was far too granular to, to mean very much for an exercise like the TEF. So I'll be very interested to see what they do with that. Mm. That actually was the key finding of that that you could maybe track learning game but you can do it for very small groups almost to the level of individual students you couldn't do it in any comparable way and camille i mean hello if you're listening um she was delighted at this recommendation she said oh i might actually have a lot of reports that w- would be useful for this mm-hmm. yes uh, that sounds like something for us to get yeah, into on uh, on the site um just before we wrap up i think it's, it's just worth mentioning ofs are going to consult on the details of this new tef in due course probably later in the spring something like that we're we're told so look out for that As you've been hearing, the government of Westminster has put out an avalanche of policy from the skills white paper to an interim org response to really consequential changes to the TEF. It's a big day and a big week in education Wonkland with far-reaching consequences that you'll hear even more about after this ad, in fact. And to help the sector make sense of it all, we're putting together an event on the 9th of February to discuss what it all means and where it's all going. We'll hear from policymakers like Shirley Pierce, the chair of the Independent Review of the TEF, and we have a stellar lineup of seasoned policy experts and, of course, Team Wonky on hand to help navigate your way through it all. Better yet, the event is free for our Wonky Plus subscribers and partners. Just head to wonky.com events to find out more and book your place at Creditworthy, making sense of the government's new post-18 proposals. And if it's not there yet, when you visit, just check back on Monday morning when we're launching more details in the briefing. See you there. Right. There's been a bunch of other stuff also out today. Jim, talk us through the. What that I says. mean, you, you'll recall, we certainly recall, um, that week in November when literally everyone seemed to be running a review of admissions uh, and all wanted their, uh, you know, report on it out first. Uh, what's interesting, I think, about the reviews, the various reviews of admissions is, as I've said on the site today, if you're someone that, <laughs> Michael Barber, big thinker, <laughs> and you're like, well, one of the things we need to do to fix admissions is, you know, A-levels or what happens, uh, you know, that, you know, you know, post-16, or you're someone that says, you know, you c- there's no point fixing admissions because what you've got to do is tackle the you know highly selective system or the boarding school model this is not a review for you uh, because really uh, what's happened here is various sector bodies have been competing to lead a debate about whether or not people either a do what is happening now b get their grades and then apply to university or c uh, apply to university and only accept their offers, uh, only get made offers off the back of the results coming out. So uh, post-qualifications, applications or post-qualifications offers. And that was actually built into OFS's consultation last February. Um, it was also, you know, the kind of big uh, either-or in the Universities UK work. It was the either-or in that little thing that UCAS did uh, in November and so on. And what's happened here is DfE 
with its uh, famous levels of leadership and competence and capacity has decided to say to all of the others, don't worry, we'll lead this one uh, and has taken on that debate all on its own, stuck a consultation out and away we go. Now, in some ways, although I'm being uh, a bit sarcastic about it, um, and, and, you know, PQA as a debate has always been something that would involve, you know, schools and colleges as well as universities but i mean you know in some ways we're dancing on the head of a pin here and in the end what this is a debate really about is the extent to which we basically stick every student into clearing and what i thought was really interesting about ofs's uh, consultation last february is ofs was going to pick up a range of other things around the edges of this that to some extent sticking every student into clearing would exacerbate so for example what do we worry about every summer newspaper headlines going oh look students have been offered an ipad for you know d- during clearing or you know there's a new app on alexa or whatever if you put every student in the country into you know a kind of equivalent of clearing all of that happens again and what ofs was going to do was look at behavior of agents and advertising and so on and so on all of that isn't in the dfe review what's in the dfe review as i say is a straight straight up choice flip a coin between uh you know pqa or pqo so it is what it is i think as well, i think if you look at that agenda you know you sort of think well, the people who wrote that can't have talked in any great depth to the people who wrote the fe and skills white paper because if the intent is for higher education provision to become more modular to do more of a step on step more off, responsive to a region the whole concept <laughs> of pqa it's, it's mm. sort of it, it's still this very kind of you know there, there is a national model where everyone is progressing neatly from one thing to another and of course we know that demand for the kind of the three-year traditional you know higher education res- residential boarding school experience i mean none of that's going to go away and it'll probably kind of increase enormously over the next decade so there's still a space for that sort of provision but if the admission system is is sort of nudging people in that direction you know, unless you basically say, right, we're going to take all selective universities out of the equation. And bearing in mind, you probably also want selective universities to be offering some of this flexible provision as well. We're not talking about apprenticeships. We're not talking about college provision. We're not, to, you know, there's, there's, we're not talking about anyone over the age of 21. You know, you're talking vast swathes of, the, of you know, the majority of, of provision potentially yeah. isn't, isn't featured in the admission system. So let me get this right, Thierry. You're saying that there are some people in government working on one area of policy and then <laughs> they didn't talk to another team of people working on an adjacent area of policy i mean and somehow i know it's incredible to think but i am i am floating that as, something as a contradictory it's i yeah well i know okay what that I'm, doesn't sound what, like this government doesn't what, sound what, like what doesn't sound what like i'm like actually saying is and i know this is something that UCAS is thinking about quite carefully yeah. is you know if you want to build a uh, a system particularly information advice and guidance um for you know for, for young people and adults that involves, you know, apprenticeships and, you know, you and Blair helping you work for Morgan Stanley. <laughs> and at the same time as you want, you know, the kind of traditional residential model, at the same time as you want something that's a bit closer to home and a bit more bite-sized, at the same time as you've got something that's kind of employer-based, and you want to put the, all those options out and give them equivalence, you absolutely don't underpin it with an admission system that says, when you get your A-level results and you progress to university in September, this is what it will look like, you know? Um, so clearly... That is going to have to be thought about. Um, Jim, you, you read the letter from Gavin Williamson to RFS. Was the other big uh, flank of stuff that happened today? Uh, the reason I think this is really interesting is because it is your classic canary in the coal mine about what happens next, potentially, with the actual response to auger in the 
autumn. So, you know, let's give let, let me give you a couple of examples. So, uh, you know, there's not that much tea funding these days, but you know, there was the, you know, there has been a, a top up for um what was called high cost subjects, right? And STEM and health courses uh, in today's letter, as of next academic year, are going to get a bump up. And performing arts, creative arts, media studies and archaeology all get cut. So that allowed Gavin Williamson to turn up to Parliament today and say, I am reducing funding for media studies. And of course, if, if Parliament had had more than you know one person in it, he'd have gone behind him. You know, the, you know, great populist line that I dare say we will see in the, in the newspapers tomorrow. But the other thing, though, that's fascinating is to move the deck chairs around the kind of, you know, funding envelope, T-funding next year, Titanic. Um, what they've done is a big real, a right kick in for London. So at the moment, both on subjects and on the student premium funding, you know, the the extra money that people, the, the magic money tweak, the extra money that uh, providers get for, um, you know, students from, you know, disadvantaged backgrounds and so on. Uh, there's a London top up. It's not that much, but there's a London top up. And London's having its top up taken off it. And, you know, that, that I think is really fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, because there are potentially really serious equality impacts if you think about which part of the country does a lot of the heavy lifting on, for example, uh, black and minority ethnic recruitment of students. Um, but also because. <laughs> astonishingly, let me just read this sentence, right? So it, the sentence is. The levelling up agenda is key to this government, and we think it is inconsistent with this to invest additional money in London providers, the, 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 the only such regional weighting that exists in the grant. So to level up, they're going to level off. <laughs> <laughs> and the reality is there's an analysis in the letter right that shows that the percentage change in t grant funding for london will be minus 13.7 with all the other regions doing better like that is not leveling up folks that is just leveling there's a, um, a couple of other delights in this uh letter so um to forestall almost this uh, perception of an attack on the humanities and the arts. There is a bit of extra money in there for specialist providers in the arts that can presume, that can prove they are world class. So, I mean, your stuff like your conservatoires, that kind of thing. They're also halving the allocation for, it's actually, um, a third off, uh, the, um, UniConnect allocation, which is a, um, a pretty decent thing. But the weirdest one for me is that teaching capital, which, um, that actually used to be a formula allocation. If you've got a certain number of students, you get a certain number, a certain amount of capital to invest in, uh, buildings and kit in infrastructure in the stuff that you need to deliver the course. That is now changing to um, a bidding framework. And what's curious about that, round about 2003-04, years and years ago, there was a thing called the Better Regulation Review Group, and it looked at the burden that uh, HG regulation was, was placing on providers. The primary thing it said was there are were way too many bidding competitions, and you're not always successful, so it's a lot of work that providers do for no benefit and everything should go into formula where possible and for a government that's declared itself as being against the bureaucracy of of um higher education because that's another cheap populist point that it likes to make um to say okay we're going to do a bidding competition which means everybody has to do more work and less people get the money it's just 
I'll tell it's you, inconceivable, that. really. It's quite bizarre. Oh, well, well, I mean, I mean, the the, the formula funding allocation. It, my, on my first reading, I sort of thought oh, that that is a bit of a hangover from the old Hefke days when everything was just sort of tied, tidily parcelled out, um, and and it sort of makes sense that, that this government would want to kind of you know allocate it according to its priorities. And of course, you know, this, this government, in you know, in the absence of of uh, an enormous teaching grant, is always looking for levers to try and kind of push an agenda, and this and this, and this is one of them. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, it, it did seem quite clear that I mean, we're talking about 150 million quid of which um last year 10 million is went to jisc anyway so yeah. you know and b- between all between all the english universities so the overall amount that we're talking about distributing isn't huge i mean it's sort of it's substantial but it's not you know it's not kind of game-changing money so yeah the and the, you know creating all kinds of, of forms to fill in and, and extra things, particularly when you think about this. I mean, the, the, the agenda to radically scale up uh, digital and, and blended across the sector seems, you know, that seems to be something that everyone is going to have to invest in. Yeah, so, and it's a capital cost, you know, exactly. Yeah, and when, yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that is very much going to be the big capital cost in the next couple of years. So, yeah. You know, there is a regional analysis here that basically says everywhere but London does better out of this and London does worse. But then, then right at the very, very, very end of the document, there's also an analysis, really handy analysis, of provider impacts grouped by UCAS tariff. And if when you add all this up, Higher tariff universities do 4% better and lower tariff universities do 6% worse. So the levelling up that's going on here isn't only, you know, it's not, it's it's only levelling, but also. It, even if money is pouring into places other than London, it's pouring into places which disproportionately recruit well-off students. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a really curious, difficult, fascinating kind of whack-a-mole thing going on here on on what levelling up ends up meaning. And when you add to that who are, who's likely to be the winners and losers out of a big, you know, kind of whatever the ARPA thing becomes and, you know, where the ref goes and so on and so on, you get a particular time type of levelling up here which really isn't about the sorts of institutions that you might expect would win out of an agenda like that uh, when you're looking at higher education so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes and all over wonky.com don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via apple Podcasts or your favorite android podcast directory or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on the Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to DK, Debbie, Jim and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay safe and stay wonky. Stay wonky.